Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. It's good to see you and uh, being away for a week because of the snow and wondering if we'd be away again. It is, uh, it's just great to be uh, together. And uh, I applaud you for, uh, you know, uh, enduring the storm. Uh, y'all are like one step away from being Canadian. So uh, it's a good job. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, but it is good to be with y'all. Uh, it is wonderful to be uh, able to come to God's word and to sing praise together and to be with one another around his word. And the portion of his word we're looking at this morning is Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of this chapter. And if you don't have a Bible in just a moment, the passage is going to be projected on the screens in front of you. But if you remember from the last number of weeks that we've been in this book, that the dominant, the the primary theme of this book is the theme of joy or rejoicing. Uh, 12, 13, 14-ish times these words show up in these four chapters. Paul speaks of joy and rejoicing, right? He has joy for the church itself. He has joy in the midst of his suffering. He rejoices at the advancement of the gospel, And this morning, he's going to turn to joy again. But his joy this morning will be found in unity, in the way in which the church is supposed to function. And so let's go ahead and read Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you would be glorified in our midst, that you would be lifted high, that you would be made much of, that my words would give honor and glory to you, that our thoughts and our hearts, that they would honor you as our king. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that this morning, and not just this morning, but every morning and every day of our lives, that you would be made much of, that you would be gloried in. And so, Father, meet with us and teach us so that we would see your beauty and we would give praise to you, our glorious Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I read a wonderful book called The Boys in the Boat. I imagine some of you have maybe read this book. It tells the the great story of the eight-man crew from Washington State University and how they won the gold medal at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. It's a wonderful story about uh, these men who had some never rowed before, and yet they were recruited and, and 
pulled into this team and, and how they, they rallied with one another and they followed their coach's lead and, and they took the rowing world by storm. It's, it's a wonderful story about how these men, some of them were lumberjacks in the summer, how they came from the woods, how, how this sport of crew was far from their minds, and yet they became world champions, Olympic gold medalists. It's an incredible story. It's beautiful. They took the Eastern Ivy League schools by storm. No one had ever heard of them. It was Harvard and Yale and those schools that had dominated the sport until these eight men came along. It's beautiful. I highly recommend it. If you, if you have time, go and find it and read it. It's, it's wonderful. But one of the things that caught my attention in this book wasn't simply the background of the rowers. It wasn't simply the, the storyline of the coaches. But it was when the author described the different mechanics that, it requi- that is required to row, to be part of a crew team. You see, he, he talks about how every single member of the team has to be in complete synchronization with one another. How when uh, the oars have to come out of the water at the exact same time and they have to turn the oars so that they cut through the air and, and they all go into the water again at the exact same time at the exact same angle. It's really remarkable to think about, but it's even remark- more remarkable to observe. While I was reading the book, I decided I was going to watch some crew, and so I went on YouTube, and I looked at some races, and it really is that. Their oars come out of the water, and they split the air, and they descend back into the water at the exact same time in complete harmony. It's really beautiful to watch how, how completely in sync they are with one another. And what's amazing is that if they get out of synchronization just for a moment, if they get out of harmony just for a second, that that they'll lose valuable seconds. If an oar comes out at the wrong time or it hits the water at the wrong angle, it can throw their synchronization off. It can throw their harmony off. Their, Their unity is no more, and it can be the difference between victory and defeat. But when they're in sync, when they're in perfect harmony, It glides across the water. They move with speed and force. It's beautiful. As they're in complete unity in their pulls and their pushes. That's what they're in need of. That's what they need to do to be excellent at rowing. To be surrounded around this one goal. To be focused on this one task of moving from point A to point B as quickly and as smoothly as possible. They need to be in harmony. To be in complete synchronization. And that's what Paul is saying the church is supposed to be. Did you hear it in verses 1 and 2? He said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's saying, if you've experienced any of these benefits of Jesus... And you have, if you are part of his church, you have, if you are resting in Christ's salvation, if you have experienced any of these, then what? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's that word again, joy. We've heard it many times already. We're going to hear it many times in the future. He says, complete his joy, that his joy will find its completion when the church is living in unity. Same mind, same love, being in full accord and one mind. This is how we are supposed to live together. You remember a few weeks ago, 
uh, before the snow a couple weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 27, Tobias was leading us through that passage and we were reminded that Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And there the focus is often on our individual lives, rightfully so. But there's a manner of life in which our corporate life is to be as well. You see, it's not just our individual lives, but our corporate life is to be marked by being united around the gospel, having the same mind, the same love. And that's not a problem for us, is it? A few hundred people? Come on, a few hundred people living and breathing and thinking around the same goal, living as one. That's easy, isn't it? Of course it's not easy. Right? That's not easy. And yet it's the very thing that Paul is calling us to, to live as one. And if we are going to live as one, if we are going to live this out, this unity that he's calling us to, it requires of us humility. You see, we are to be united in humility. That's where Paul goes after he talks about us having one mind, the same love. He says in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is what we are to put on. If we are going to live united together, we must be humble with one another. And in order to be humble, that means we first have to put off pride. That's what he said, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And I have to tell you, at this point, I started to think about illustrations, examples in our world of pride. And, and I realized something very quickly. I didn't have to think very hard about it. <laughs> right? Selfish ambition, conceit, pride. I mean, it's all around us, isn't it? We see pride in our elected officials. We see selfish ambition in celebrities. We see pride in professional athletes as well as amateur athletes, right? Go, go to your next Little League game. And you will see pride on the field. Pride's not hard to see. It's in the very air that we breathe and in the water that we drink. Pride is all around us. T.S. Eliot once said that most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. Thinking about themselves. G.K. Chesterton wrote, if I could only preach one sermon, it would be a sermon about pride. And more recently, the late postmodern writer David Foster Wallace said, everything in my own immediate experience, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. It is our default setting hardwired into our circuit boards at birth. He's right. Pride and selfish ambition, it's not hard to find. And it's certainly not hard to embrace. But it is hard to resist. And y'all, the truth is, is that if we do not resist it, it will destroy us. Pride inhibits unity. Because if you're prideful, you are concerned about yourself at the expense of others about having your own way, of pursuing your own desires, of focus on your demands. You cannot love or care for or be united to others if you are prideful. And so we must resist pride. If we are going going to humbly be united together, we must resist pride. 
Because the way of pride is the way of self. But the way of the gospel is the way of humility. Paul said, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, what Paul is presenting us with and what he's challenging us with is to think about ourselves less. I don't remember who first said it. It's been quoted so many times, and and it's certainly not original to me. But humility isn't thinking less about yourself. Humility isn't tearing yourself down or being self-deprecating. Humility isn't thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And I would add to it, and thinking about others more. That's why Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. You know, whenever I do a wedding, when it comes to the homily, it doesn't matter what the original uh, text was, whatever the verses were, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 or Ephesians 5, whatever, I always make sure to include that verse in the wedding homily, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I always include that, and then I say to every single couple I have ever married, I say to them, I want to challenge you to graciously compete with one another in giving of yourself for the sake of the other. That's what I call them to. Because we know that that's what a flourishing marriage is going to entail, right? That a family that is healthy that is caring, that is united together, that it means that one another, that the members of that family, the members of that marriage are going to give of themselves, right? I mean, the, the husband does not love his wife as the church, as Christ does the church, who's sitting there going, you know, um, I took out the trash, and I shoveled the snow, and, uh, and I got the kids up this morning, so, you know, I think it's kind of time for her to do all the other things. Those aren't my jobs, right? You, you got the dishes, sweetie, <laughs> right? Like, we, we know that that's not how a successful marriage works, does it? I'll do like 50% and you do 50% and we'll be okay. Like, that's not how it works. No, the, the marriage that's healthy, the family that's united is the one that is selflessly giving of themselves. Who isn't sitting there thinking about all the things that I've done, but is sitting there thinking of all the things that I get to do. Say this to every couple. But you know what's amazing? Is that this passage actually isn't addressed specifically to married couples, is it? I mean, it has application for our homes, but actually Paul is writing to the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's speaking to the church. And so could you imagine what it would look like to take this posture towards each other? That we as Christ the King Presbyterian Church would compete with one another to be more selfless, to be more giving, to be more sacrificing. It would mean we'd put aside our desires and our preferences and our rights for the sake of one another. It would mean that we would take language like, I've already served in the nursery. Or I volunteered for VBS last year. Or I've been part of hospitality. You know what? It's time for someone else to do those things. 
we would take language like that, or we would take language with like, we, we can't form a new small group because I just love these people too much, and, and I can't allow other people in here. We would take those sorts of words, and we would replace them with, I'm happy to show up early, and I'd love to stay late, and I can't wait to spend time with these kids, and I want to make room for the sake of others. It would mean not looking to our own interests, but humbly counting others more significant than ourselves. And y'all think about that. Like, just imagine what that would look like. Is there any more beautiful and strange thing for the world to see? Right? A few hundred people. A few hundred people living in humble unity with one another. I mean, what an incredible vision that is, right? That is so foreign to the world in which we live. That is so foreign to our own hearts and inclinations, and yet that is the very thing that the churches do embody. That we would humbly give of ourselves. That is the vision that Paul gives us for how we are to live. But he doesn't just give us a vision for how we are to live, he tells us why we're supposed to live this way. We're united in humility because we've been united by humility. The humility of Christ. Right? Paul roots our humble union as the church in Jesus. He says in verses 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So you hear what he's saying? I just told you to do these things. This is what I desire for you. And why are you supposed to do it? Because this is the mind of Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So y'all see the trajectory of Jesus's life? This one who was in glory, who was majestic and honor, what did he do? He humbled himself. The way of Christ is the way of humility. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, before we go on, we have to say what that means, because uh, at first glance, it might look, or it could potentially look, like Paul is saying, Jesus, when he took on flesh, he stopped being God. Now, let me just say, that's not what Paul's saying. Okay, let me, let me say it again, just so there's no confusion that your pastor is not a heretic, okay? That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that when Jesus took on flesh, that he gave up his divinity. That's not what not grasping or emptying himself is speaking about. Okay, the emptying of himself is simply him taking on flesh. So Jesus, in his incarnation, he became 100% man, but he also remains 100% God. And from the incarnation and forevermore, he is 100% man and 100% God. It's what it means for him to empty himself. He's taking on flesh, but, but that language of not grasping, right? He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Well, that language, the New Testament theologian D.A. Carson tells us, is getting at this idea that, that grasping is something to be employed for one's own advantage. And so what, what the passage is telling us is that when Jesus did not regard 
equality with God, something to be grasped, what he's doing in his flesh, in his incarnation, is that he is not using his power and his authority, which were rightfully his, he is not using them for his own advantage. He had every right to, but he didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used on his behalf. But instead, he used that power and authority not for himself, but for others. So he who was God humbled himself, and he took on the form of a servant. That's what Christ did. You know, there's this scene in the uh, series The Crown. I know some of you uh, have been watching that series on Netflix. Kat and I just finished the most recent season, right? Because it's, it's fun to watch the monarchs, right? Like, God save the queen, right? I'm Canadian. I can say that. I know, like, I know as Americans we can't say that, but I can say that, right? God save the queen. Anyway, so uh, we, I love this series. And in the most recent uh, season that we just finished, uh, one of the characters that they focus a lot of attention on is Princess Diana. And Princess Diana, in the very last episode of the most recent season, she's in New York City. And she's in New York, and she's traveling around, and she's functioning as an ambassador on behalf of the crown. And on one of the days, she decides to go visit a hospital, but she doesn't go to one of the big, fancy research hospitals. She doesn't go to the hospital in the wealthiest neighborhood. She goes to the hospital in the poorest neighborhood, in one of the poorest hospitals. And when she walks into this hospital, she enters onto the floor where there are children there who have all tested positive for HIV. Now remember, this is taking place in the 80s. So this was before much was known about the disease, when there was still great stigma associated with it. And there was Princess Diana, and she's standing there in this room full of children, some of whom have been abandoned, some of whom their parents have died, and they all have HIV. They're all going to die of AIDS. And she stands beside one of the beds, and she leans into this young little boy and embraces him and pulls him close and holds him. The princess, the mother to the future king, the the wife to the king before her son would be king, the princess humbled herself. She stooped down and embraced that child. It is a beautiful and powerful scene. And as incredible as that scene is, it is nothing in comparison to the humility of Jesus. Because Jesus is the king of the universe. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Scripture says he holds them together. And yet the king of the universe, the one who is glorious in majesty and power, he stooped down and he came near us. He's not just the prince or the king to come. He is the king. And he would take on flesh and humble himself. The one who had perfect communion with Father and Holy Spirit, who is Lord over all, who is infinite in majesty and holiness, he entered this world To serve us. To serve us. That's what Paul's words stress. But that's not just what his words stress. That's what Jesus' life was. 
right? I mean, do you remember in the Gospels, there's this scene where the mother of James and John come to Jesus, and she asks on her son's behalf, she says, when you come into your kingdom, will you grant it so that one of my sons will sit at your right hand, the other on my left? Do you remember this scene? And you can imagine, like, James and John are sitting there going, like, Mom, don't embarrass us before Jesus, right? But inside, they're really thinking what? Man, that's what I want. Right? I want it. I want the place of authority. I want the place of prominence. Give me that seat at your right or left hand. Right? And the the disciples understood this. They heard, and they were indignant with James and John. And you remember what Jesus said to them? Well, first he said, it's not my place to give. But then he said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You see, what Jesus was telling them was that the master, the king, the creator of the universe humbled himself. And because he humbled himself, that's what our lives are to look like. That if the Son of God stooped down and took the form of a servant, how much more his followers? You see, Jesus is saying this is the model for your life, but what's amazing is it's not just the model for our lives. Jesus isn't simply a model. He's the Savior. I know many of you know I stopped short on his words. Right? Jesus went on, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And y'all, that's what Paul is reminding us of. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Now, the cross is such a common symbol in our culture that we sometimes forget how brutal the cross was. Right? I mean, we wear little gold crosses around our necks, and it's you know, hanging from the ceiling at the front of our sanctuary, and it's bolted to the roof of our church. And all of our depictions are oftentimes very pristine and very clean and very smooth. But the cross was gruesome. It was gruesome. It was a painful and horrible and humiliating way to die. It was reserved for enemies of the state and the lowest of criminals. And that is how the king of the universe gave of himself. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he did that for you. He did for me. So that in his death, Christ counted us as more significant than himself. And because of that humility, Christ has been exalted. That's how Paul ends this passage. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, who was in majesty and glory, humbled himself and took on flesh and gave his life. And because of that, he has been exalted and honored. He has the name that is above every name. The name that at his death, the pronouncement of his name, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before and we will declare that he is Lord. And y'all, we don't have to wait for tomorrow to do it. We can do that today. That we proclaim and declare that he is the Lord. That we, his people, are united by his humility and by his exaltation. And y'all, when we know this, it changes us. It's going to change us. 
The bishop J.C. Ryle once said that the root of humility is right knowledge. The person who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he, is, he was redeemed, that person will never be a proud person. In other words, we will be united in, hum- in humility when we know and rest and look to Christ, the one who humbled himself for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but that you sent your Son, the one whom angels adored. You sent your Son to take on flesh and to dwell amongst us, to give of his life, to live a life we could not live, and to die a death that we deserve to die, to rise again victorious. And because he has done that, we have new life. And so we pray, Lord, that we would humbly follow you, that we would live with humility with one another and before this world, and that we would give you glory. Glory to the one deserving of all glory and of all praise, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. And God's people said together, amen.